Welcome to episode number 50 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and I am pleased to bring you the audio from our Lord's Day worship service that took place on June 13th, 2021. Reformation Roundtable is a production of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. We are a Reformed and Evangelical church right here in Centralia in the heart of Lewis County, If you would like to join us for worship, we would love to have you head on over to lewiscounty.church. There you will find the most up-to-date information as to where and when we will be meeting. I hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope you join us to experience the wonderful and robust blessing that is covenant renewal worship. Enjoy the sermon. So our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Ezekiel. 17, verses 22 through 24. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on high and, and, a, and prom, I will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all, of, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Pray with me. Father, you are the one to whom all worship is due. Prepare our hearts now for this glorious feast you call us to each week. Thank you for your promise. Thank you that you promised to make the dry tree flourish. Prepare us now to be exalted and renewed. And for this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 138. Hear the word of God. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name. For your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. Lift up your hearts. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are here because you have called us. While here, we will seek to praise you with our whole heart. Thank you that though you are on high, you still regard the lowly. Even though throughout this week we have walked in the midst of trouble, we are here because you have called us here and you will revive us. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of our enemies. You will save us. You will perfect everything that concerns us. We ask that you would always remember us and not forsake us, the work of your hands. We thank you for the great honor of coming before you, 
before you in worship, in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. amen. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Mark that the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground. He tells us that whether the man who scattered the seed is awake or asleep, whether it is nighttime or daytime, that seed will grow. In fact, Jesus tells us that it will grow even in spite of our inability to understand why. In other words, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom built upon IQ, rationality, or individual maturity. It is not built upon the strength of a people or their, on their wisdom or on their understanding, theological understanding included. Rather, the kingdom of God is built upon faith. Christ tells us that this faith is the kind of faith that infants and nursing babies have. We look down on this kind of thing as kiddie stuff, but not Jesus. He says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, the kingdom of God is built upon this. It is built upon faith in the work that God does when his children follow the work of Christ. This work of Christ is like a seed as well. First it must die and then it will rise again that it might produce 30, 60, and 100 fold harvest. The kingdom of God grows like this because it is God and not us who gives the growth. When we spread the good news, the gospel, we are scattering seed. We are scattering seed in faith because we believe that God will actually give the growth. We can plant, we can water, we can weed, but we can't make anything grow. That is the work of God. So here's a question. Do we actually believe this? Are we actually being ambassadors for Christ with this kind of faith? Do we expect the nations to be converted and that seed to grow into a full harvest? We should. We're promised that it will. In fact, later in Mark, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the tiniest of all seeds. And yet, when planted, it dominates the garden. It becomes the largest of all garden plants, so much so that not only is it visible to all who are in the garden, but the birds of the air can perch in its, in its shade. This tiny seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is promised to grow into a plant that is so large that the birds of the air will come and enjoy the shade it gives. This tree and bird theme shows up in our lectionary reading this week. In fact, we read it in Ezekiel 17, which was part of our meditation. We just, I'll, I'll, I'll remind you, it says, on the, mount, on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. And it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. That's Israel he's talking about. This passage also harkens back to the description of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who was given a dream where he saw a similar tree. This is in Daniel 4, 10 through 12. It says, Behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. 
and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So Daniel is called to interpret this dream, and this is what he says. He says, all of those things you just dreamed, Nebuchadnezzar, it's you. You who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. That's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. So we see Jesus using this analogy of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as a type and shadow of the kingdom of God, with one very important exception. As good as the reign of Nebuchadnezzar sounds, what comes next is a disaster. Nebuchadnezzar has trusted in his own strength and is not walking by faith. He is doing the opposite of what a faithful king does. Instead of seeing the kingdom as belonging to God and being entrusted to him, he sees the kingdom as belonging to himself and as a result of his own wisdom, his own understanding, and his own strength. Because he lacks faith in God, the giver of gifts, his tree is to be cut down, and he is to be, quote, driven from among men, until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. This image of a tree of dominion that is, faith, that is visible to the ends of the whole earth and in which the nations found life is now being applied to the kingdom that Christ is ushering in. This is the good news. Jesus has come and has thrown down every ruler and authority. Remember that Christ was promised the nations in Psalm 2. We read, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. King Jesus has been given the nations, and that includes us. We are his subjects, and by the grace of God, he loves us and actually came not to make war with us, but to save us from the wrath to come. However, don't let this amazingly good news cause you or myself, cause us to forget that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in response to the coming judgment on his kingdom, he said, this is what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, he said, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Likewise, Paul tells us in Ephesians, almost as an aside, as if this is common sense, you guys already know this. He says, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He, says, he then goes on to say, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, empty words, because of these things, those things that he just said, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, walking in pride as Nebuchadnezzar, living as a son of disobedience, stewing in and protecting our secret sins as we are wont to do, all stem from us not walking in faith, not trusting the promises of God, not believing in the power of the gospel to save sinners. That's what the gospel does. It saves sinners. Lack of faith is the MO, the modus operandi, the standard operating procedure for those in rebellion against God. They operate with no faith. One of the reasons that those who claim Christ could walk, away, could walk in this way is because they don't truly believe the good news that Jesus has come to actually save the world. His mission isn't just a noble effort. It is really happening. We believe the words of David in Psalm 110 when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the words of Paul 
which says in Corinthians, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. These truths about faith and the kingdom of God, along with these warnings surrounding disobedience to the king, remind us of our need to prostrate ourselves before the son, confess our sins, and beg his forgiveness in faith, knowing that he will forgive us. So as you are able, please kneel with me. Scripture says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Pray with me. Father, we confess to you our corporate sinfulness. As a people, Lord, we have sinned grievously against you. We have not walked by faith, but have instead trusted our own strength, our own sight, and our own understanding. In the perverseness and insanity of sin, we have trusted the very thing that cannot be trusted. We have not trusted you, but have trusted ourselves. We have not obeyed you, but obeyed our own urges, our own desires, and our own lusts. We have not loved you, but have loved ourselves. Father, as a nation, we daily murder the unborn through abortion. We oppress the fatherless by teaching shameful lies in government schools. We slay the widow by excessive taxation and inflationary theft. We confess things that aren't sin and declare our pride over all the things that you hate. We call good evil and evil good. In our sin, Father, you have driven us as a nation to madness, and we are self-destructing in our insanity. Forgive us for our sins. Please do not mark these iniquities against us. Deliver us as a nation, we ask for Christ's sake. We now, Lord, confess to you our own individual sins and Selah. We ask all of these things in the good and strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Hear the following promise from Scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be down here with you all again. As you uh, open your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 13, 1 through 14. These are the words of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made, known, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, 
having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory." Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive it. Let the preaching of your word be faithful, be true to to the text. We pray that these people would receive it in the name of Jesus and amen. amen. Well, since I'm going to be coming down here from time to time, I decided that I would go ahead and just start preaching through a book and I'm going to preach through Ephesians. Um, So who knows how far we'll get, but we're going to start at the beginning and, and move our way through. So as I do so, um, uh, I'll introduce this a little bit, and then we're going to give a brief overview of the book of Ephesians, and then we'll move particularly into the text this morning. If I said to you all, you are sitting, if I just said that to you, what what would your response be? Either you would agree or disagree, and hopefully all of you would agree. This is because the statement is indicative. And here's, it's a, there's a little grammar lesson for you in, our, in the sermon this morning. It's an indicative statement. It's a declaration of, of, of a fact. It's a statement of fact. It is something that is to be, to be believed and agreed with or to be disbelieved and disagreed with. Now, if I said to you all, sit down, this is a different type of statement and a different type of response that you would have. You would either do it or you would not do it. You would either sit down or you would not sit down. You would either obey or disobey. This is because the statement was an imperative. There's a difference between an indicative and an imperative. An indicative is a statement of fact and an imperative is a command. In general, to obey an indicative, to obey a statement of fact is nonsensical. It it doesn't make any sense. If I say you are all sitting, you don't say, you know, if, if I was telling my kids at the dinner table, you're all sitting down, they wouldn't say, yes, sir. It's just true. They just are. Okay, so it would be nonsensical to obey it. It is not something that you do. And to only believe an imperative, okay, so to believe a command is also nonsensical. An imperative or a command is a call to action. The book of Ephesians is a clear presentation of the gospel and the effects of the gospel. And the very structure of the book lends itself to this presentation, And this whole thing of indicatives and imperatives is very important as we look at Ephesians. Chapters 1 through 3 state the glorious works that God has done in Christ for believers, that they might be saved. What has God done to bring this group of people that Paul is writing to, to salvation? That's what Paul is talking about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. What has God done? And several times in these chapters, Paul is driven to prayer and praise even as he writes. The things that God has done are so incredible, so amazing, that that Paul just leaps into these ecstatic prayers for these people and prays to God as he's writing. These chapters have been summed up, I think it was by a a Puritan um, who identified this difference, but summed up by the Latin word credenda, means things to be believed. 
In chapters one through three, as you look through, you will find that there are no imperatives in these chapters. There are no commands in chapters one, two, and three. There are only indicative statements of truth to be believed. So chapters one, two, and three in Ephesians are all indicative. They're all statements of fact, things to be believed. And this is the foundation that Paul lays. And then if you look with me real briefly at chapter four, verse one, the chapter four, verse one is sort of the hinge of the book of Ephesians. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of God, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you, with which you were called. It's at that moment that Paul turns his exhortation to these people that he's writing to, and he no longer just gives indicatives, but he starts to give imperatives. He starts to call them to walk in a certain way. He begins to lay out what Christians are to do having believed the truth of the gospel. And in this way, the final three chapters describe many aspects of the Christian life, the things that Christians are to do, the way that Christians are to walk. So that's a good framework to have in your mind as we start to go through the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are all indicatives. They're statements of fact. Um, They are credenda, the things to be believed. And the last three chapters are the application of those things. They are, um, uh, the, the Latin word that is used to summarize these things is agenda. Um, if you're at a meeting and you have an agenda, what, what is the agenda for? Well, it's to help, you un, uh, to help you remember what are the things you need to do in the meeting. They're the things, the, the list of things you need to get through. So the last three chapters of Ephesians are agenda, things to be done. And that's where you will find all sorts of commands, um, things like husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands, children, obey your parents. Those things come in the latter three chapters of Ephesians, but those com- the command language is entirely absent in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Okay, so now back to our text for this morning. In chapter one, Paul lays out, if you look at verse three, he says that he begins by praising God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's a summary statement of uh, the rest of this passage. In the Greek, um, from verse 3 until verse 14 is one sentence. Okay? It's breathless. Okay? But, but Paul is um, overwhelmed with the things that God has done. He can't stop talking about it. He can't put a period in there. In your English translations, you probably have it broken up into a couple, uh, into a couple different sentences just so that you can breathe. But, but I think it's interesting to note that. This is all one sentence. In, it's, it's a one thought in Paul's mind. And the summary of it is this verse, uh, the beginning, verse three. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, what does this mean? As we look through this passage, Paul lays out the spiritual bless- these spiritual blessings. He lays them out and identifies them for these Christians that he's writing to. I'm going to identify eight of them, um, but there's a couple different ways you can, you can see this at, in the text. I don't think Paul, well, he doesn't number them for us. Um, and so if, if there's differences of opinion as to exactly how many there are here, that's fine. We're going to look at eight of them or highlight eight of them. These are the things that are true for Christians Um, but not things which they need to do or that they need to obtain. Again, these just are statements of fact for Christians, for those who believe. So first, 
God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, God has blessed us and he's given us all these spiritual blessings. Then the first of these blessings is the fact that God has chosen us in Christ. Why did God choose us? Paul says that it's so that we might be holy and without blame before him. So God has chosen us and he's chosen us for a purpose that we might be before him, that we might be in his presence. But in order to be in the presence of God, what must we be? We must be holy. We must be without blame. Because if we come into the presence of God and we're not holy and we're not blame, what happens? Um, God's, uh, God's wrath is, is sort of the reaction that comes when his holiness interacts with sin, comes into contact with sin. That's what God's wrath is. When sin comes into, the, in, and comes into contact with God's holiness, the result is his wrath. And so if we are to be in the presence of God, if, we're, if we are to come into his presence, we must be holy and without blame. We can't be holy and without blame on our own, and so God has to have chosen us for this purpose. Uh, this is uh, one of the places that we can turn to to understand better the doctrine of election And we see here that this election is free because it is in Christ, not ourselves. We could compare this also to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We'll get there eventually. But Paul makes very clear that our salvation is not something of our own, something that we have done, but it is purely the work of Christ. It is something that God has um, designed for us, chosen for us, called us to it. He's the one that has saved us. And this happened And because it happened before we could choose any good or evil. This election is free before we could have done anything. Well, how do I know that? Because he chose us before the foundation of the world. This happened in his plan, but it happened. His his choosing of us, his election of us happened before I had a thought, before I existed, before any of us had any ability to choose good or choose evil. God chose you. Uh, Paul says something very similar in Romans 9 when he's speaking about the difference between Jacob and Esau. Um, He says that God chose Jacob over Esau before either of them had the opportunity to do good or evil. It was all part of his plan. And so this election, this spiritual blessing of God's choosing us is free. It is all in Christ and it happens before the foundation of the world. The second blessing that God has bestowed on us is that he sovereignly planned to make us his sons by adoption and again by means of the work of Christ. Look at verse 5. Uses here another term, another theological term that makes some people uncomfortable. God has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God has chosen us God has predestined us to adoption as sons, as part of his family. Why did God do this? Certainly, it is not because of any good in us. Once again, it is entirely because of the work of Christ and because it pleased him to shine forth the glory of his grace. This is what we see in verse 6. Why did God do this? So he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Verse 6, why has he done this? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Or you could translate this as to the praise of his gracious glory. 
by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And this is then the third thing. So the first thing is God's election over us, his election of us, his choosing us before the foundation of the world. The second blessing is his adoption of us, making us part of his family, making us, in essence, sons with Christ. Okay, obviously not in the same sense, but Jesus in a Uh, in one of the other epistles, it says that Jesus does not despise to call us brothers, right? We are sons of the Father because we are in Christ. And then this this leads to the third blessing in verse seven, that we are accepted in the beloved. So first is election, second is adoption, and the third is accepted. We are accepted in the beloved in Christ Look at with me at Matthew chapter 3. This is a, a well-known scene, but it's worth turning to and seeing again. Matthew chapter 3. I'll just read the last two verses of the chapter. When Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father is well pleased with the son. And he makes this very clear from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is pleased with the son. And if you are in him, then this is something that you need to hear. This is something you need to understand. This is one of the spiritual blessings that God has granted to you. If you are in Christ then you are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in Christ. The Father is well pleased with you. He's pleased with you. And that's something that we so quickly forget. He's not pleased with you because of all the good things that you've done. He's not pleased with you because of your success. He's not pleased with you because of your relationships. He's not pleased with you because of any of those things. But if you are in Christ... He is thoroughly pleased with you. He looks at you and he says over you the same thing that he says over his son. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And how is this then one of these spiritual blessings? I think in this instance we see maybe more clearly than in some of the other things how this is a blessing to us. There is nothing that gives a son or a daughter more confidence and more joy than the declared and evident pleasure of his father over him. And this is true for us, not only in our uh, earthly relationships with our parents or with our children, but this is uh, um, absolutely true in our relationship with our father. There is nothing that gives you more confidence in your walk with Christ than to know that the Father is pleased with you. And we forget that. It, this is true. This is what Paul is saying to us. You, one of the blessings that we have in Christ is that we are accepted in the beloved, accepted before God. And if we are accepted in Christ, then the Father's pleasure that he has for Christ is the same pleasure that he has for you. Okay, so fourthly then, in Christ, we have been given redemption. We see this in verse seven. In him, this is, this is another thing that you'll see, in, especially in the first um, chapter of Ephesians, but really all through the first three, is how many times Paul says in him, in Christ, in that one, 
So many times he references Christ through here. It's clear that this is, all of these spiritual blessings really are in Christ. That's, that's central to Paul's argument here. But this redemption that we have been given in Christ is through his blood. It's the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Once again, we have the, the overabundance of God's grace. That's what your salvation is. The blood of Christ covers all of your sins. Adam and Eve were meant to rule the world. Uh, God tells us this in Genesis 1, 28. He gives to Adam and Eve dominion over um, all of the creatures of the world. And he tells them to go and take dominion over the world. Adam and Eve were meant to rule the world, but because of their disobedience, sin and death instead reigned. Genesis 2, 17 God says that if you, in the day that you eat, he says to Adam, the day that you eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And then in Romans 5, Paul tells us that um, sin and death reigned from Adam. Because of, this, because of sin, because of his fall, Adam, mankind, is no, no longer had dominion over the world, but rather sin and death did. But by the shedding of his blood, Christ purchased back those whom the Father had promised to him. And in doing so, he, he died, he was buried, he purchased back the, um, all, all uh, or he paid for all of the sins of mankind, of those whom he would save, and then he is raised from the dead, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father as a man. And as a man, he reigns, and, all, and he says in Matthew 28, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Adam and Eve had been told to take dominion, and they failed in doing so. And then in the ascension, Jesus is raised to the right hand of the Father, and he is given that authority. There is a man that is reigning over all things now, once again. But in the context of all of this, in the midst of all of that also, our sins are forgiven. God's grace in redeeming, in redeeming us abounded to us all the more because this redemption was not accomplished quietly, but rather it was revealed the mystery of his, will, of his will was revealed to us. We see this in verse 9. So Jesus comes, and through the shedding of his blood, we have the remission of sins, the forgiveness of our sins, such that, uh, John tells us in 1 John, that if, uh, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of the blood of Christ. His blood is sufficient for all of our sins. Okay, so we've received this redemption. And then also there's this revelation that is given to us, which is the fifth spiritual blessing. This is in verse, uh, verse nine. God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. God purposed part of his plan all along was to reveal the salvation of the world to us. This is the mystery that he reveals in the coming of Christ. The light came into the world. Uh, John tells us that, uh, that the light came and the darkness could not comprehend it. But the light came and the light triumphed. What does light do in a dark room? It lights up the room and the darkness fades away. The revelation of Christ is a blessing to us in that we know him. Part of this mystery that was revealed was the fact that the Redeemer had come for all people and not merely for the Jews. Paul will get into this more in chapters two and three. 
but the light of the gospel shined forth. The, the mystery of, of God's will was revealed and God's purposes were made known. And now we carry that revelation with us wherever we go. We carry that with us wherever we go. If, if you are in Christ and therefore Christ is in you, you have his light in you. And wherever you go, you reveal this mystery. How is it that you can be saved? How is it that someone can come to know God? How, how is it that somebody can be made right? Well, you know that it's through Christ. And so wherever you go, you take that with you. You take that light of the gospel with you. And God's mystery, the mystery of God's, uh, of God's will is more and more revealed as the gospel continues to spread. And this in turn leads to yet a sixth spiritual blessing. God's purpose was not simply to redeem mankind, but to bring together all things in one under Christ. Verse 10. And this happened in the dispensation of the fullness of times, Paul says. This means that it happened when God saw that it was fit to happen. Um, Sometimes we might ask, why did Jesus come when he did? Why, Why did he come at the time that he did? Why did God set things up? If you read the Gospels, it's very clear that God set things up in just a way so that Jesus would come at a particular time, in a particular place, in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Why, God? Why did that all happen? And there's good things to be studied there, but at the outset, what we should understand is that first and foremost, it happened because God said that this was the fullness of times. It was part of his plan. He had a design from the beginning for how he was going to bring this salvation to the world. And so at the fullness of times, when Jesus was born, he was born because it was time. It was the fullness of his plan. But God's purpose was not simply to to redeem mankind, but to bring together all things in one under Christ at this time. All nations, Jews and Gentiles, heaven and earth, all these things God is going to bring together under Christ. And it is all in his good timing, according to the fullness of time. It began with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And the rest of history is the story of God bringing all things under the lordship of Christ. Okay, so if, if God is bringing together, this is why, one way to see this is, this is why, one of the reasons why God sent his son. So that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Because of sin, man fell. Man was separated from God. Creation groans waiting for the redemption there is division between, not just between man and God, between, but also between man and man. We see this all throughout history. But God's purposes are in Christ to bring all of those things back together in one under Christ. And so this includes all nations. It includes heaven and earth. And this is what the story of history is. As you look at history, we should be able to see and more and more see the, the lordship of Jesus Christ um, taking over all of, the, all of the earth. This is our expectation because we know what we've, uh, um, because God's will has been revealed. His will is that all things would be brought together under Christ. The seventh blessing is that we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things 
according to the counsel of his will. Once again, we see here that this is something that God has designed ahead of time. It's something he has predestined. It's something he has ordained. And it's something that he has blessed us with. We have obtained an inheritance. What is this inheritance? Look with me at um, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter begins his epistle in some ways similar to the way that Paul begins Ephesians. But if you look at chapter 1, verse 3 in 1 Peter, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When somebody is uh, saved, God obtains for them an inheritance. When, when they are saved, God has, he doesn't obtain it for them, then he has already obtained it. it but he, it's, it's for them. Their name is placed upon it. And what is this inheritance? It is salvation um, and, and the promise to be made right with God, to be united with him, to be united with Christ fully in the resurrection. And where does this, or when does this take place? We don't know in one, on the one hand. We know that it happens at the end. We know that it happens at, after our death, but we don't know. And so between now and that time, we're waiting for the fullness of that salvation to come, right? We're saved now completely, but we know that it's not on the one hand, it's complete now, on the one hand, there's um, certainty of it, but it's not complete yet. We're not with God yet. We're not with Christ yet. You see what I'm, do you see what I mean? There's a sense in which we're saved now, but we're going to be saved. It's going to be brought to completion. And so this inheritance then is something that is saved for us. It is incorruptible. It is undefiled. It's not going to fade away and it's reserved in heaven for you, Peter says. And he says that because of this, because there's this inheritance for you, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. And this leads right into the last, uh, the last blessing that I want to point out, which is in verse 12 and 13. We have this inheritance, this inheritance of salvation, of being with Christ, coming into um, his inheritance so that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Then verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You've been, you've been given, you've been promised an inheritance, something that's been set aside for you, this salvation in Christ, this union with him in heaven. But along with that inheritance, that promise of an inheritance is also a seal, a promise, a guarantee, and that guarantee is the Holy Spirit. Interesting, if you look at um, the, the transition from verse 12 to verse 13, you see Paul move from speaking in the first person, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, to then in verse 13, in him you also trusted. Here he is more directly addressing his audience. 
They had heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, the good news of their salvation, the mystery that had been revealed, and they believed. Paul says, you also have trusted in this Jesus. Now, one thing that this, I think, highlights to us, a little bit of a a side note from going through these blessings, but this is important. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This gets back to what Joe was talking about in the, in the call to worship time this morning. Knowledge of these things does not save. And, and this is something that is particularly, I think, important for those in the Reformed faith. Something we need to be reminded of. It's good to understand and to show from Scripture the election of God. This is something that scripture teaches. It's good to show the adoption that God has given to us. It's good to be able to study and show God's predestination over all things, but also over our salvation. It's good to be able to explain what the redemption is, that it's the, um, the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. But simply knowing these things does not save Simply knowing these things does not save because salvation is by faith. Salvation is only by trusting and believing in Christ, in the one in whom all these blessings are. One may know about and attest the doctrine of election without being elect, right? One can, uh, as somebody else said one time, um, uh, reformed people tend to love the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone but they think that they are saved by the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is really ironic because they're not saved by their knowledge of the the doctrine, but they are saved simply by justification by faith alone. Salvation is not in professing Christ, but in possessing him, in being in him. And this is important to see, and, and I think we see Paul getting to that here. He's laid out all of these things that Christ has done, that God has done, the blessings that he has um, uh, given to his people, the ways in which God's grace is abounding to you. You didn't deserve any of this, and yet God chose you and has poured out all these things upon you, and yet you must remember that it's all because of faith. And if it's not faith in Christ, not faith in the one who has done all of these things, then the knowledge of these things is worthless. The knowledge of these things merely brings more condemnation if the knowledge of these things is apart from Christ himself. And so this, but this last blessing is also a great comfort. Having believed, they received, Paul says in verse 13 and 14, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of their inheritance. How can I know if I'm going to make it to the end? If I believe that I'm saved, if I believe in Jesus, and yet I'm looking ahead and I see all of the trials that may come, all the temptations that will come, I know my own heart, I know that it is um, wicked and deceitful, how do I know that I'm going to make it to the end? And if, I'm, and if I really understand God's election, if I understand that I'm justified only by faith, then I also know that I can't do anything to make sure that I make it to the end. But can I have certainty in this? Paul shows that Christians can have confidence 
of the preservation of their souls in Christ, not because of their goodness or because of their sanctification or because of their growth. No, primarily their confidence is in the seal of the promise that is on them. If God has granted his spirit as a guarantee, that means that he forfeits the spirit if you do not receive the inheritance he purchased for you. All right, do, you understand, do you understand that? God says that the, the Holy Spirit is the seal of his promise upon you. And that means that if he has saved you, if he has granted you salvation, if he has placed his spirit upon you, then he forfeits that spirit if you in the end are not saved. And that is unthinkable. It is absolutely unthinkable. It is the strongest promise that the Lord could give. All of these blessings are essential to our salvation. Again, I'll just go through them, identify them briefly. In verses, uh, uh, verse one, Paul summarizes this whole thing saying that, they, that God has blessed us with these spiritual blessings, with every spiritual blessing. And so first God has chosen us. He's granted us election, or he has, he has chosen us in his election. In verse five, secondly, he has adopted us as sons. So that in verse uh, six, we might be accepted in the beloved. That's the third one. Fourth, that we have received the redemption in Christ, verse seven as the mystery of his will has been revealed to us, we've received this revelation of salvation, verse nine. And then sixth in verse 10, that God is going to bring all things together in Christ. There's, there's union in Christ. Union in and with Christ. And then seventh, we've received an inheritance. Peter tells us that is incorruptible and will not perish. And then lastly, the eighth blessing, verses 13 and 14, we've received the seal of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are essential to our salvation. You can't imagine salvation apart from any of them. You can't imagine being saved with one of these things being missing. God's sovereign work in our salvation is accomplished through the gift of faith, our belief and trust in that which has been revealed. And this means that central to all of these spiritual blessings is that revelation of the mystery. This revelation of the mystery. This is because it is the simple gospel, which Paul does not neglect even as he exuberantly examines all that God has done. Paul, in this long, this long breathless sentence, is talking about all the spiritual blessings that God has given to his people. And yet, in the midst of all that, Paul does not neglect the simple gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we must come back to this over and over before we understand what we must do. And this is why it began with saying that um, this section is full of indicatives and not imperatives. Uh, you might think that this is a sermon where there's not a whole lot of practical application. And that's partially true. Because there's not a lot of things in here that Paul is telling you to do. There's actually nothing in here that Paul is telling you to do. But there are things in here that you must believe. And first and foremost is to believe in Christ. Have you trusted in him? Have you rested in him? Have you placed everything and set it before Christ? Have you placed your whole self in him? 
Uh, This also goes back to something else that Joe mentioned earlier in the service. We can't um, present ourselves to Christ in part. We can't say, I want to trust in Christ, but I want to have this part of my life be separate from him. This is true of our desires and our wants and our sins, anything. It all has to be laid before the feet of Christ. And if we're not bringing our whole selves before Christ, then we might as well not bring any of us to Christ. He demands all of you. But he demands all of you because he loves you, because he has called you, and because he's going to take all of you and he is going to fashion you, all of you, to make you holy and blameless before God. There is great blessing and great confidence that Christians can have in this. And we must come back to this over and over again because we must understand that there are things that we must believe before we go and try to do what God has called us to do. Fundamentally, what must you do to be saved? And the answer that Paul would give is don't do, but simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can extend this then to any other situation that we come across. What must I do to fix some problem or situation in my life? I've got, I've got a crisis of some sort. It might be big, it might be small, but what should I do to fix this? And first and foremost, you need to hear that you may not do anything until you have first placed everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. First, believe on him. Are there things to be done? Yes, absolutely. There's much to be done. There's much to be confessed. There's much to be fixed. There's much to be gone and, and, and done yourself. Works that you need to walk in. But only after you believe the things to, believe, to be believed. Only after believing in Christ. Only in believing in the work that he has done and resting in that. In other words, before God, you can do nothing if you are not first resting on Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this gracious gospel that says that we do not have something we need to do to be saved, but rather someone in whom we should trust. And Father, help us to understand how this extends to every aspect of our lives, that we would take these things, these promises, these blessings that you have for us, um, knowledge of our election, of our adoption, of our acceptance before you, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, all of these things, would we take them and trust in them in Christ? And would you use this to grant great confidence to these people as they go now and walk in the works that you've called them to? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In the sermon text from Ephesians, Paul identifies the blessings that we have been given. Uh, Excuse me, Paul identifies the blessings that we have been given of being brought under Christ as our head. The fact that all things have been brought into one and are being brought into one. We have union with Christ and this union with Christ spills out into our union with one another. Union and communion with Christ means then union and communion with other believers. And this is precisely one of the things that we should see here at the Lord's table. In 1 Corinthians 10, scripture says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. By partaking of Christ together, we are made more and more one body with one another. 
And this is one reason why communion is not something to be done privately or individually. It is not merely a remembrance of what Jesus has done for you individually, although it includes that. It is much more, and it is one of the means by which God communicates grace to us to knit us together as the body of Christ. And so to all who have been baptized, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge to you this week is this. There are things to be done, but before you do them, remember whom, in whom you must believe. There are things to be believed before there are things to be done. And this is true, not just in the big things. This is true in the small things in your life, the small trials, the small temptations, um, and the big trials, the big temptations as well. Whom do you believe in? Whom are you trusting in? And remember that before you go and do. Now hear the benediction from your Lord. May God the Father grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And amen.